I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf. If you listen regularly or follow the weekly newsletter, you'll know that I'm a fan of The Soul of Enterprise, hosted by Ron Baker and Ed Kless. And we even had Ron on the show, and it's one of our five most downloaded shows of our new podcast. Now, early in their show, several years ago, they mentioned the book, The Management Myth by Matthew Stewart. I immediately bought it, and I listened to it, and I couldn't put it down. And when I started the show about a year ago, Matthew was a marked man. I wanted to interview him. And so I'm thankful Matthew Stewart agreed to be on the show. We talk about management, strategic planning, Frederick Winslow Taylor, management consulting, the business gurus, and much more. That's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. So Matthew, before the book, your book, The Management Myth, and we're going to talk about why I love this book, but it started out as an article with The Atlantic. I'm going to cheat here in 2006, and then the book came out three years later, but the article did come first. Did you plan on writing a book or was it just the article and then yeah, now I'll do the book? Yeah. So the, the backstory is that there was actually a version of the book before there was the article. Then there was the article and then there was a new and, and improved version of the book. So I mean, what, when I finished working, which was just before 2000, I, um, I wanted to process the experience. I wanted to get it all down. I thought the world wanted to hear what I had to say. So I wrote down, I wrote down a draft of a book. I had trouble finishing it, couldn't get it out. Um, I sent off an article to The Atlantic. They did not get back to me for about a year or two years. I had forgotten about it, in fact, when they got back to me. A year? And, um, They're idiots. <laughs> a year? Well, they, they, they made the right call in the end. So, I, <laughs> and, and, of course, it ended up being one of their most read pieces for that, you know, that year or for several years. So it was, it was quite a, a, um, a success. But, um, you know, it was just left there. And I, that, that, when, when that um, struck a chord, and I thought, well, I should really take the book more seriously. And I, I went back and redid it significantly. I, I love the article. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes. I just want to pull out three quick points which you also hit in the book, but you said that management theory is a subgenre of self-help. You remember that? Uh, you also stated that every framework from the five forces to the seven C's are just heuristics or mental models. And even though they can lead to solutions, they don't lead people to think on their own. Great point. And then finally, you're a philosopher. Uh, you said that philosophers are much better at knowing what they don't know. That's still true today, right? That's right. The philosophers are, are actually um, more thoughtful about what they don't know. And I, I guess the one thing that you said that I'd like to um, really stress is, the, is that um, these heuristics or these theoretical frameworks do have some utility. I don't want to just throw them all out. Right. But the important thing is to recognize them for what they are right? okay. and not to pretend that they're a science when they're not. Great point. We're going to get into the book, but I just want to ask you right off the bat, what is the management myth. What is it? <laughs> um, of course, I, I want to encourage people to buy the book, so I want to keep a, keep a yes. little bit of mystery. But um, the, the, the management myth is is um, a, a kind of category that we make mistake that we make about management. We think management is a certain kind of thing. We think it is a a, a, a technology. It's a way of doing things that you can learn in the same way that you bake a cake or something like that. 
Uh, and I think that's a fundamental mistake. That, that's the myth. And the reality is that it's actually a very human practice and it's a form of ethical life. So you cannot really separate uh, management from the decisions we make about how to live a good life and a good community and, uh, and to have a, a sensible world. So that's, that's the myth I want to target, the idea that management is one thing and that it's a technology. One thing I want to make very clear is through our emails back and forth in preparing for this conversation, I know that you are a very humble person. And I need to say that for the next thing I want to say. This book is a classic, and and I, I wish every MBA program in America across the globe that this was a required uh, reading because one of my frustrations, Matthew, as we were talking before we started, was I just feel like you have all these management frameworks. There's that word again, and it almost seems like it's a religion. Uh, it's it's very cultic or cult-like, and, and it's like – why don't we go back and revisit the, the history? And so, again, the book is outstanding, which we'll do a little bit deeper dive here in a minute. But are you okay with me calling this book a classic? Well, I'm, I'm totally okay. In fact, I wish you would just pass the message along with my publishers. That might make them feel a little bit better. Um, but but it, it does. you're also getting at something else that I really want, want to draw attention to, and that's that I think there's a lot of richness in thinking about management. And many of the things that have been written are – about it are often written from a fairly narrow perspective. And we really could approach it from you know, many different angles. I tried a sort of literary angle. Um, I tried weaving together a bit of personal story and a bit of analysis. Um, but I think other people could try, you know, try to produce classics of their own. So that That's the general uh, gist, I think. And I hope people will take it as, um, you know, in a, uh, something that will, stimulate thought not not um, not dictate it for them your your book is part memoir in a way in fact i i was trying to study what's it called when you write about yourself but it's only one part of your life and it's it's that time period where you got out of school i uh, got your first job in consulting so your background is unique you don't have a business background yeah i, I think it's important for um you know, listeners understand that I, I really do represent an outside perspective on these issues because two weeks before I got a job as a management consultant, I didn't know what a management consultant was. And I would have been shocked and horrified to, to learn that I would become one in a couple of weeks. Um, I was doing a, a, a DPhil or a doctoral degree in philosophy and 19th century German philosophy. Um, and I guess I've always been a kind of academic or intellectual at heart. I've always wanted to be a writer and I finally did get to live the dream. But, um, you know, at, at the time I, I needed the money, I needed a job. And, um, it actually seemed to make sense to me in a certain strange way, you know, that I could take these kind of thinking skills and writing skills and put them to use in this strange new occupation. This was the late 1980s, by the way, which is a slightly different world in, in, in all of that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I fell backwards into it. And I guess the other important part of the story um, for anyone listening to understand is that I ended up staying a lot longer than I anticipated. So I, when I first approached it, it was, I think, the moral equivalent of taking a job as a waiter for me. I mean, I thought I'll, I'll have a job I'll, and then, then I'll figure things out. Um, and I, uh, through a complicated series of steps, I ended up getting, getting involved in setting up a new firm 
that meant that all the money I made, I had to put into the firm. And then for various, very complicated and not altogether pleasant reasons, I had a lot of difficulty getting the money out of the firm. And the net of it was that I spent 10 years in, in the business, not all of it on the job, but some of it where I did take some breaks. But um, so it's a very unusual story. Um, but I, I hope that makes it interesting for people because I really was looking at it from, from the outside. And I'm, I'm, you know, hopefully opening a perspective on it. If I'm not mistaken, you interviewed, or you didn't interview, you applied for about 10 or so different firms. And then the last one said, we're looking for someone different. <laughs> and you got that one. Yeah. They, the actual word they used was experimental hires. Experimental. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I really felt like a laboratory animal at that point, but, uh, you know. And I thought, but it was fair because I, I was, you know, I was in the market for an experimental job. And so. and I thought it was hilarious. You you when you got hired, I don't know if it was right away, but you started reading the, the Financial Times and some other business uh, publications to help you start learning the the lingo, the the acumen. I that was hilarious. Yeah, we. I mean, you have to. We all have to try to remember these pre-internet days, right? Because yep. you know, I, there I was. It was the 1980s, and I was studying in England. And I was pretty disconnected from the world. And so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what any of this stuff was. And so I literally went, went to the college library and got the Financial Times and I found these books on corporate finance. I mean, it was, it was funny and slightly sad at the same time. But, um, and then, 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 as I explained in the book, all that preparation didn't, didn't um, amount to anything, didn't, didn't help at all. My, my two weeks of cramming. Uh, didn't didn't have anything to do with the interview. The interview had nothing to do with that. Where, where, as you started uh, writing this, and this is after you got out of consulting, what made you step back and want to look at the history of consulting? You go all the way back to Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is really, I guess, the god, quote unquote, of efficiency, which, by the way, we learned that he was a little bit of a, well, Maybe it wasn't everything he was he thought he was. So selling some snake oil, maybe. But uh, where did the idea come from to go back to him? Yeah, no, he's he's a funny guy, and we should definitely get to him. But to your question about the what what drew me into the subject, um, setting aside the personal side, um, there are these major changes that have taken place in our. Um, in our economy over the past 40 years. And some of them are very obvious, but in some, sometimes I think they're so obvious that we overlook them. And the ones that I was particularly interested to explain were um, first, the, the g- tremendous growth in this kind of professional managerial sector. So I mean, explosive growth in the business schools, explosive growth in management consulting. Um, and, uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. They're in my book, but but they are order of magnitude changes in what was going on. I think that was something that I thought needed to be explained. Um, and then the other uh, broader socioeconomic issue is rising inequality. I mean, we had the, the CEOs sort of back when I, in my high school and earlier period would have been, you know, at, at 20 or 30 times the average wage. And I guess there was a sense that they were higher up on the, on the tree than everybody else. But um, in the subsequent decades, as we all know, they left the tree and sort of climbed up uh, a mountain. So I, I thought those issues had to be explained. Um, but those are the larger scale issues. And then, and then you brought up Taylor. I, I got to say that 
uh, you know, my, as, as an academic monkey and historian of philosophy, I, I, I do like to understand origins. I think that we can get a lot by saying, you know, how this sausage was made in, in the past. Agree. And, um, and even I, with my, you know, fairly distanced and somewhat cynical, it was, was pretty astounded um, by what I discovered with uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Um, because, you know, he, so he's, He's the original founder of the idea of scientific management. His book, The Principles of Scientific Management, right. 1911, got that that idea out there. Um, and there was a good side to that. It said that you know management is something that, that can be um, analyzed and where people can be held accountable and you can measure things and so on. Um, but he backed up that idea with all of this so-called research that he was doing, right? And he told the story about the research that he was doing. And while I can't go into too many of the details now, let's just say that when you look at the, the individual stories that he tells about how he made a certain operation more efficient, it all just, it falls apart like a bad, you know, a, a bad cake or something. It's all just crumbs and there's nothing left. So um, that was, I thought, quite interesting and revealing that, there, you know, the science was never really there in scientific management. We won't list all of the gurus, but I think the next one that came up was, was it Mayo, I believe? And uh, and then we just kept going further and further in time until we get to Tom Peters. And what I learned just in going through those names, every one of those gurus, they're flawed, aren't they? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> but, but why do why why do we why do we buy in? You're the philosopher. Why do we buy in? I like to think I'm cynical, by the way, very skeptical of you know I want to you know prove it. But yet we still give in. Why, why is that? Well, uh, you know, Mark, you mentioned at the beginning that um, you you, um, you saw that or you, that um, people are looking for religion in some sense, and yes. they're looking for an answer. And I think that that gets at the the core of, of, of the issue. This is it. This is driven by demand. It's driven by what people want to hear, and what people want to hear is the answer. They want to hear. The, the story that packages it all up and gives you the three values that you're going to aim for. Um, and so that's why that's what the management gurus then deliver. So, um, you know, I, I would look first and foremost at the, at the audience and ask why, why is it that we have this craving for that um, kind of religious uh, story? Um, and, you know, Again, I, I like to see it uh, as, as a mixed thing. I mean, look, they're, they're, it makes sense. Of course, people want answers. So, of course, it makes sense for someone to deliver. But, you know, let's, let's just be honest. A lot of these guys are basically hucksters. And, 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 the, and the, um, the trajectory, the, the, the history, as, as you point out, it's not that there's just one bad apple. There. It's not just Frederick Winslow Taylor. It's sort of one after the other. It's really... Um, you know, profoundly flawed. I mean, not to go too far into the Elton Mayo stuff, but um, here's the guy who is at the foundation of the human relations school of management right. thought. Um, and he's also in some ways the, uh, a, a key founder of modern sociology, or at least the sociology that deals with organizations. So he's a big figure. And he's associated with these so-called Hawthorne experiments, which is People may remember this from some, you know, freshman class in, in college, you know, and it has to do with the importance of paying attention to your workers and so on. Mm -hmm. So the general principle that, he, that he's talking about is good. It makes sense. But then when you examine it, it turns out that there was no Hawthorne experiment. It, it, 
it, there was no real research, and, the, and, and, and Mayo summarized it inaccurately and, in fact, fraudulently. So, it, and, and that's just Mayo. And then you can keep going on. There's, you know, Tom Peters, and, and then Peter Drucker is, is sort of, you know, identified as, this, as, as the one respectable guru. And yet, honestly, it's, it's, um, his, his stuff doesn't really, uh, you know, it, it can't be counted as, as very serious research, I think. And, and I think that, that says something about what's going on there. Says something about the nature of the discipline. This may be an unfair question, but I want to I want to give it a try. So Tom Peters, his book came out in Search of Ex- Excellence, his first one in 1982, I believe. So mm-hmm. if if you were if you if he were happened to be in Boston and and you two happened to meet each other and you you go to a coffee shop, can I ask you? And you can say, Mark, it's none of your business, or Mark. I would I would say no, but what would you talk about uh, over coffee? I would love to be a fly. I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that in that in that coffee meeting. Yeah, no, I, I I'd be happy to to, to sit down with, with Tom, my new friend, as you're, as you're making him. And um, my sense is it'd probably be a lot of fun because um, one thing I, I find kind of endearing about Tom Peters is that he's he kind of is upfront about what he's doing to some degree. I yes. mean, there's some kind of revealing and, and, and funny um, quotes where he says things like, okay, yeah, I know that what we've been talking about is all a bunch of motherhoods and platitudes. Um, and I think at some point he says, okay, a lot of what I've said is a bunch of baloney. <laughs> and um, so, so he seems to recognize what he's doing Um uh, I'll tell you where I would challenge him though, and because I, I do like to provoke, and you know, especially if if if, the, if we're if we're at that cafe, cafe for more than an hour or so, I might get to this point. I might say, "Look, Tom, you know, this is all great. You're teaching these platitudes and motherhoods, but you are not paying attention to the role that your um, cheerleading plays in um, hiding from people." some of the, the, the more profound issues that are, of what's going on in the workplace, right? I mean, you know, you can talk, you can be a cheerleader for, you know, committing yourself to the work and being super creative, but unless you recognize that in a lot of cases, it's just a question of power and who has power and who doesn't have power, or in a lot of cases, it's really about trust, about who, um, uh, about whether uh, managers and workers or, or teams trust one another or not, um, unless you unless you're willing to recognize that there are these serious political issues, you know, then you you might just be kind of covering up for people. You might be just serving as a as as part of the problem. I think you know, and I, I might I might push it that way, but but I might not. I mean, he, you know, he seems to me like a nice guy. I agree, and I do follow him on, on Twitter. I'm not going to say he's mellowed, but if, this is opinion. This is opinion. I'm going to throw it out there. I think if he were to read the book, if he hasn't already. And I hope he has. I would say to I bet he would say, Matthew, you nailed it. No, I mean I, I just I hope you pass the message along. I, I have to say I haven't I haven't followed them. I'm glad to hear that he's out there. Um The NBA Love Affair. Now I know it's been a while since you've since you've been consulting. I'm sure you still have opinions about the overall, you know, the value of the NBA today. And by the way, you did have some good reasons for uh, for having, you know, what good can come out of a uh, an MBA, especially at a top school. But why is there that love affair still, even today? And I think your numbers in the book, uh, I think you stated in the book 18,000 
as of 1968. And then my last number that I looked up, it's around 200,000 graduating annually uh, with an MBA. I think in the book, 10 years ago, you were in that, you stayed about 140. So the numbers do keep going up, but why the love affair? Yeah. So our society in general has really moved towards this credentialing model. And uh, so there's no question that a big part of it is, is, um, is, is this, you know, drive for credentials. And it's just one way to sort people um, out. I, I guess the other thing that's driving is, is the, the higher cost of education. So when people are, have to spend so much for an education, they, they really start to demand that it, ha- it have, uh, that it be practical. But of course, what they really mean by practical is not necessarily that it teach you something that will be practical, but that it can just get you a job, which isn't quite the same thing. Um, and I, I think that's, what's, what's really driving it. I wish th- there's no, there's no simple, um, answer to it because, um, sure. Some kind of business focused education can be very useful for some people. Um, I don't doubt that we could, we could restructure it. And some schools are doing this. I have spoken with some, you know, very professors at different, um, business schools and they are trying different things. But one approach that I like that some of them are taking is saying, okay, we're preparing people for business. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're just studying business in some narrow sense. Right. So they, they start to bring in other courses. Um, they look at uh, broader social and economic issues. Um, there was a nice course at, at Columbia that I participated in that was looking at um, social divides in America, kind of, kind of course you'd see in a, typically in a history faculty or perhaps a sociology faculty included in the business school. So that, that's one approach, I think, to take. Um, another approach is that I, I really wish employers would be a little more open-minded. I mean, um, why, why do they need to, to, to insist on that, that credential? Um, you know, because my, you know, I, I, when I looked at the data, and this is now about 10 years old, when I looked at it, and especially in the field of consulting, the evidence that the MBA uh, as a degree improves performance relative to some other form of education is incredibly thin. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the people with the, the, those PhDs in philosophy, man, I gotta tell you, they, they just, they, they just do really well. They do it at least as well as the MBAs. So, um, or, or better. So I, the, the, I think opening the minds of employers is another, you know, key part of it. And then I guess a, a final thing, I'm getting a little long winded here. I apologize. Uh, but no. a final thing is, uh, I like the idea of continuing education, right? And I do think that we need to, as a society, move away from the, you know, massive injection of education when you're 20 or 23 years old or whatever, um, and, and more towards a thing where it's something you come back to and pick up in pieces. And by the way, please do not apologize. Keep talk, uh, Just keep talking if you want to. There's one, one part of the book I absolutely uh, love. And, and now that you know, I've come out of the closet to state that I've read this multiple times. You've gotten more than one standing ovation. It's the it's the concept or the topic of strategic uh, planning. Uh, earlier this year, I was on a panel discussion talking about strategic planning. And when it got to my turn, the question was asked, Mark, what is strategic planning? My answer was, well, guys, it's a $2 billion industry. <laughs> And, and well, and I did get a little bit of a laugh, but um, right. you talk about strategic planning, and I appreciate your sarcasm. Uh, I, I 
I appreciate uh, the way you approached it. And I just want to say nothing's changed, <laughs> Matthew. Uh, yeah. it, it's almost like, yeah. okay, which manual are you going to, first of all, what guru are you going to follow and what manual, but they're all about the same. Well, what would you say about strategic planning today? Would you, if you were re uh, updating the book again, or we're going to, would you make any changes to it? Yeah. Well, I got to say that that is both um, gratifying and slightly frustrating that um, the world has not changed as much as I thought it would. Um, in fact, I think I should just tell my publisher to do a reprint and say it was published in 2020 and see what happens. Um, I agree. Uh, but no, I mean, I think things, I, I, I'm sure there would be, there would be updates, but um you know, in the in the long historical perspective, one thing that I found quite striking as I looked into the history was that um, for many, many years, decades after management was invented, there was no strategy or strategic planning. So all the way from the early 20th century until about, uh, I guess it's not the first signs of change were in the, in the 60s, but not until I would say the 1980s with Michael Porter, you actually have strategy. Right. Right. Uh, and then yes, strategic planning, I suppose, started a little bit before that. But um, and, and not only that, but the business schools consciously said, first of all, they called it policy. And secondly, they said, well, this isn't really something for us to study. I mean, this is just something you kind of do um, and um, and you don't need to kind of study it formally. And, and honestly, that position is just as coherent as, as, as the modern one, which says, oh, yes, it's this discipline and it's kind of like being a Greek general, except that instead of, you know, you know having these uh, hoplite soldiers, you've got, uh, you know, cars and computer chips or something. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's kind of sad. It's also, it also makes for pretty bad reading. I mean, most of the stuff I've read in strategic planning, man, that's, that's the hardest stuff to get through, I think. And I'm just thinking sure. of some of the some of the greatest startups in the world. I mean, I just read a, the story of Netflix uh, by one of the co-founders, and they didn't do strategic planning. Uh, Salesforce, when it started, I just interviewed the uh, CFO who took them public a, a week ago. They didn't do strategic planning back then, so it's it's like. We could learn a lot about some of these startups who are having to just figure things out by just listening. Uh, to their their customers, but we. By the way, there is. I'm not going to give away anything in the book. No spoilers here. The first book, or one of the first books, I think Drucker wrote, "Managing for Results." It was supposed to have another. You're nodding. You're supposed to have another title. That was an aha moment, and we'll just leave. We'll leave that. We'll leave the suspense there. And uh, you'll get to figure something out that's very that's that's good research uh, on your part. Uh, a couple of last things. <laughs> couple, couple last things on the book, real quickly. Near the end, you stated, and, and I did a little reading myself, and I agree with you. You said that CEOs are not necessarily reading uh, the gurus, and I agree with you. I will. I like to read people's book lists, so they'll be. CEOs that are interviewed and they'll say, what are you reading? And I'm amazed at some of the things that they're written. It's not business books. So do you want to elaborate a little bit just as you were writing this? I know it's been more than 10 years ago, but it's true. They don't always read the gurus, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and um, as a general rule with plenty of exceptions, I, I tend to find that if I ask somebody what they were reading and um, I, 
learned that they were reading the gurus, that, that, that was a warning sign. Whereas if they told me they were reading something else, um, that usually could be a, a much more positive sign. So, I, I mean, th- this is going to date me, but when I was in the in consulting, I do remember um, there were people reading, for example, about Hitler and Stalin. There was a good book that came out by James Bullock at that time. Um, there was also the, the, the very successful book um, on the making of the atomic bomb, other things like that. I mean, uh, and then, you know, some people, of course, reading uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, my, my experience has been that when you find someone who's who's reading that kind of thing, that's generally a much more positive sign um, for their, um, you know, their managerial skills and relevance than, than reading, reading some gurus. This and this may be an unfair question as we start wrapping up here, Matthew. I know it's been a while since you've been in the consulting industry, but looking at the type of consultants you work with in your own firm, are those types of consultants needed today? I mean, really needed. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I mean, as, as you know, Mark, that there, there are, you know, as many different kinds of consultants right. as there are, right. I don't know, you know, varieties of cheese at the grocery store or whatever. So there's, you know, it's, it's, un, it's, uh, it would be unfair to lump them all in one bucket. So you're just talking about a very narrow sliver yes. of the kind that I represented, which was sort of the, the so-called strategy boutique things. And, and um, honestly, I wish, I, I wish that um, we could move towards a world where there's a, there's a much smaller number of them um, and the, and the, uh, where they were, you know, more seriously professional. Um, I think that some of the bigger ones now really don't, don't deserve to exist. I mean, you know, um, McKinsey seems to be going from one catastrophe to another. Right. Um, and the case that they um, have left behind any sort of uh, professional uh, or ethical uh, responsibility seems, you know, sadly very strong. Um, so um, I think the world could do with a lot, a lot less of that. Uh, which is not to say that there, there isn't room for something. I mean, I do think that, that, you know, an outsider bringing perspective to a business can be very helpful. I think that there are, there's absolutely room for, for people who are familiar with a particular sector who can um, bring expertise um, to bear. So I, I don't, you know, there, there's plenty of room for consultants, but there is a kind of general consultant, a sort of, you know, uh, hired gun that, that's there to kind of paper over, um, you know, often power plays. And I think that that, you know, the world would probably be better off with a bit less than that. For people like me and other people who are self-aware and we do want to read and continually learn. And I didn't finish part of my sentence who want to read widely, not narrowly. uh, What can marketers, what can operator or operating people, supply chain people CEOs, we mentioned just a few minutes ago, of course, CFOs like like me, what would be some suggestions you would have of continuous learning reading program? And and again, I have a feeling you're going to say what interests you. But again, with the philosophy background, you, you obviously read widely uh, literature, I'm assuming too. And what, what are some suggestions? Well, I, you know, I think that, um, many people have, have been very lucky or successful in, in joining up with their local groups. I mean, it may just be a book club or it may be something more formal, but I think that, um, it's, it's a good idea to try to, um, do something with other people so that you can talk about it, you know, um, 
Uh, and in terms of, I mean, you're right. I'm going to just fall back on what interests you because I mean, the, the the world is so wide. And I think reading is it's just one part of the sort of experiences people should be looking for. I mean, I would add, uh, you know, some some travel and um, you know other kinds of experiences too as a way of, of mixing things up. Um, you know, because I do think we should take all a, 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 a holistic understanding of what we're doing as we're going through the working world and not, not narrow it down unnecessarily. As we're recording this, uh, we're on a Zoom recording, and I apologize if I'm turning away from you. Uh, I accidentally deleted my Amazon page. I had your books. I actually bought another one of your books uh, this morning, and I'm going to try to get through it later in the, later in the year. It's, it's about the... Um, uh, the American, the time period of the American Revolution, and I'm anxious to re- get some insights. What, what, what is that title that I bought? Uh, it's already escaped me, but I promise. Yeah, uh, that, that, one, that one's uh, Nature's God, The Heretical Origins of the American Republic. And so that, that's, um, you know, it's a fairly long book, I have to caution you. It's, all it's right. about the philosophical origins of the American Revolution. I mean, I, 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 I'm, if you want me to recommend the book, you might enjoy um, a little more The Courtier and the Heretic. Um, it's about Leibniz and Spinoza, and it's um, it's a little more to the point. And in a way, it's the prequel to the Nature's God. Oh, it is. And by the way, I was reading some of your reviews. They're great. <laughs> I don't think I've read anyone that says this is a terrible book. So that I did look at that one. I didn't buy it yet, uh, and I was going to ask you about it. And that's going to be one last question I had for you about, about philosophy. One of the books I have is called The The Worldly Philosophers. And it's it's just many bios, like each chapter is about 20, 30 uh, pages of, of a famous philosopher. Is I don't know if you've read it. Maybe you've, it may be on your bookshelf somewhere. No, it doesn't ring a bell. Who's the author of that? You know, if you just look up The Worldly Philosophers oh, in, in, on yeah. Amazon, again, it's a little dry. But I was just going to ask you, just from a philosophy standpoint, are there any titles that you recommend? Right. No, and there, there are many, many good books. I mean, I, honestly, I, I like and I still remember some of the um, sort of classic uh, histories. So there was this, uh, The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant. It was a big hit, I think, yes. in the 1950s or still, 60s. It still is. Um, it still is. Yes, yeah. it's a great book. I mean, it's, he tells the story very well and it's accurate uh, to the extent that it can be within a small number of pages. So I like that. I like Bertrand Russell, but that's more of a personal taste. He's kind of sure. this cantankerous, witty guy. I'm not sure he would be appropriate for everybody. It's a little long. Last question. Uh, in light of the management myth, and again, thank you for, for writing that book. Uh, what is a good manager? <laughs> So, so management is, is really about getting people to work together. I'm with, I'm with, Tom Peters is going to agree with me on this. Yes, he will. It's about getting people to work together, and that just means um, getting them to have confidence in one another and to, have to, to build a strong foundation for, um, for trust. So I think, you know, a good manager is, you know, ultimately someone who is able to, um, in, in a sense, um, be a good follower. That's a- I don't think I'm going to get any pushback from you. Everyone, anyone in business should read this book. Even this morning in one of my meetings with the CEO, his, uh, his daughter is uh, going to school, wants to work for, I think she did a, an internship with Accenture. And I said, she needs to read the management myth. Now she may not get it until maybe ten years later. I said, make sure she reads the book. But everyone should read this book. 
and and I hope you are agreeing with me. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the kind words. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Jones of The Table Group and the author of Ordinary Greatness, available wherever fine books are sold. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. I do not let seven days go by without listening to this podcast. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Once again, the book is The Management Myth, Debunking Modern Business Philosophy by Matthew Stewart. Great book, great listen to if you have an Audible account. I give it five stars out of five. And again, Matthew, thank you for your time. Keep learning, keep growing, keep making a difference. I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf. (laughs) 